Chapter 7. The meal was over at last. The party broke up. Dr. Mulge had an appointment in Pasadena to see a rubber goods manufacturer's widow, who might perhaps give $50,000 for a new girl's dormitory. Mr. Stoit drove into Los Angeles for his regular Friday afternoon board meetings and business consultations. Dr. Obisbo was going to operate on some rabbits and went down to the laboratory to prepare his instruments. Pete had a batch of scientific journals to look at, but gave himself, meanwhile, a few minutes of happiness in Virginia's company. And for Jeremy, of course, there were the Hoberg papers. It was with a sense of almost physical relief, a feeling that he was going home to where he belonged, that he returned to his cellar. The afternoon slipped past. How delightfully, how profitably. Within three hours, another batch of letters from Molinos had turned up among the account books and the business correspondence. So had the third and fourth volumes of Felicia. So had an illustrated edition of Le Portier de Carmes, and, bound like a prayer book, so had a copy of the ra that rarest of all works of the Divine Marquis, Les Cent-Vingt Jours de Sodome, The 120 Days of Sodom. What a treasure. What unexpected fortune. Or perhaps, Jeremy reflected, not so unexpected if one remembered the history of the Hoburg family. For the date of the books made it likely that they had been the property of the fifth earl, the one who had held the title for more than half a century and died at more than 90 under William IV, completely unregenerate. Given the character of that old gentleman, one had no reason to feel surprised at finding a store of pornography. One had every reason, indeed, to hope for more. <laughs> Jeremy's spirits mounted with each new discovery. Always with him, a sure sign of happiness, he began to hum the tunes that had been popular during his childhood. Molinos evoked Tararara Boom Die, Felicia and the Porte de Carme, shared the romantic lilt, lilt of the honeysuckle and the bee. As for the saint Jour, which he had never previously read or even seen a copy of, the finding of that delighted him so much that when, as a matter of bibliographical routine, he raised the ecclesiastical cover and, expecting the Anglican ritual, found instead the coldly elegant prose of the Marquis de Sade, he broke out into that rhyme from the rose in the ring, the rhyme his mother had taught him to repeat when he was only three years old, and which had remained with him as the symbol of childlike wonder and delight, as the only completely adequate reaction to any sudden blessing, any providentially happy surprise. Oh, what fun to have a plum bun. Oh, how I wish it was never done. <laughs> oh, what fun to have a plum bun. How I wish it was never done. How I wish it never was done. <laughs> it's a tough one. And fortunately it wasn't done. It wasn't even begun. The book was still unread. The hours of entertainment and instruction still lay before him. Remembering that pang of jealousy he had felt up there in the swimming pool, he smiled indulgently. Let Mr. Stoit have all the girls he wanted. A well-written piece of 18th century pornography was better than any mounciple. <laughs> he closed the volume he was holding. The tooled Morocco was austerely elegant. On the back, the words, The Book of Common Prayer, were stamped in a gold which the years had hardly tarnished. He put it down with the other curiosa on a corner of the table. When he had finished for the afternoon, he would take the whole collection up to his bedroom. Oh, what fun to have a plum bun, he chanted to himself as he opened another bundle of papers, and then, on a summer's afternoon where the honeysuckles bloom and all nature seems at rest. That words worthy in touch about nature always gave him a special pleasure. The new batch of papers turned out to be a correspondence between the fifth earl and a number of prominent Whigs regarding the enclosure, for his benefit, of 3,000 acres of common land in Nottinghamshire. Jeremy slipped them into a file, wrote a brief preliminary description of the contents on a card, put the file in a cupboard and the card in his cabinet, and dipping again into the bran pie, reached down for another bundle. He cut the string. You are my honey, honey, honeysuckle. I am the bee. What would Dr. Freud have thought of that, he wondered. Anonymous pamphlets against deism were a bore. He threw them aside. 
but here is a copy of Law's Serious Call with manuscript notes by Edward Gibbon. And here some accounts rendered to the fifth earl by Mr. Rogers of Liverpool. Accounts of the expenses and profits of three slave trading expeditions which the earl had helped to finance. The second voyage, it appeared, had been particularly auspicious. Less than a fifth of the cargo had perished on the way, and the prices realized at Savannah were gratifyingly high. Mr. Rogers begged to enclose his draft for 17,224 pounds, 11 shillings, and 4 pence. Written from Venice in Italian, another letter announced to the same fifth earl the appearance upon the market of a half-length Mary Magdalene by Titian, at a price which his correspondent described as derisory. Other offers had already been made, but out of respect for the not less learned than illustrious English cognoscente, the vendor would wait until a reply had been received from his lordship, in spite of which his lordship would be well advised not to delay too long, for otherwise... It was five o'clock. The sun was low in the sky. Dressed in white shoes and socks, white shorts, a yachting cap, and a pink silk sweater, Virginia had come to see the feeding of the baboons. Its engine turned off, her rose-colored motor scooter stood parked at the side of the road 30 or 40 feet above the cage. In company with Dr. Obisbo and Pete, she had gone down to have a closer look at the animals. Just opposite the point at which they were standing, on a shelf of artificial rock, sat a baboon mother, holding in her arms the withered and disintegrating corpse of the baby she would not abandon even though it had been dead for a fortnight. Every now and then, with an intense, automatic affection, she would lick the little cadaver. Tufts of greenish fur and even pieces of skin detached themselves under the vigorous action of her tongue. Delicately, with black fingers, she would pick the hairs out of her mouth, then begin again. Above her, at the mouth of a little cave, two young males suddenly got into a fight. The air was filled with screams and barks and the gnashing of teeth. Then one of the two combatants ran away, and in a moment, the other had forgotten all about the fight and was searching for pieces of dandruff on his chest. To the right, on another shelf of rock, a formidable old male, leather-snouted, with the gray-bobbed hair of a 17th-century Anglican divine, stood guard over his submissive female. It was a vigilant watch, for if she ventured to move without his leave, he turned and bit her. And meanwhile, the small black eyes, the staring nostrils at the end of the truncated snout, kept glancing this way and that with an unsleeping suspicion. From the basket he was carrying, Pete threw a potato in his direction, then a carrot and another potato. With a vivid flash of magenta buttocks, the old baboon darted down from his perch on the artificial mountain, seized the carrot, and, while he was still eating it, stuffed one potato into his left cheek, the other into the right. Then, still biting at the carrot, advanced towards the wire and looked up for more. The coast was clear. The young male, who had been looking for dandruff, suddenly saw his opportunity. Chattering with excitement, he bounded down to the shelf, on which, too frightened to follow her master, the little female was still squatting. Within ten seconds, they had begun to copulate. Virginia clapped her hands with pleasure. Aren't they cute, she cried. Aren't they human? Another burst of screaming and barking almost drowned her words. Pete interrupted his his distribution of food to say that it was a long while since he had seen Mr. Proctor. Why shouldn't they all go down the hill and pay a call on him? From the monkey cage to the Proctor paddock, said Dr. Obisbo, and from the Proctor paddock back to the Stoit house and the Mounceable kennel. What do you say, Angel? Virginia was throwing potatoes to the old male, throwing them in such a way as to induce him to turn, to retrace his steps towards the shelf on which he had left his female. Her hope was that, if she got him to go back far enough, he'd see how the girlfriend had passed the time when he was away. Yes, let's go and see old Proppy, she said, without turning around. She tossed another potato into the enclosure. With a flutter of gray bobbed hair, the baboon pounced on it. But instead of looking up and catching Mrs. B having a romance with the Iceman, the exasperating animal immediately turned round towards the wire, asking for more. Stupid old fool, Virginia shouted, and this time threw the potato straight at him. It caught him on the nose.
She laughed and turned towards the others. I like old Proppy, she said. He scares me a bit, but I like him. All right, then, said Dr. Obisbo. Let's go and route out Mr. Portage while we're, at, while we're about it. Yes, let's go and fetch old Ivory, Virginia agreed, patting her own auburn curls in reference to Jeremy's baldness. He's kind of cute, don't you think? Leaving Pete to go on with the feeding of the baboons, they climbed back to the road and up a flight of steps on the further side, leading directly to the rock-cut windows of Jeremy's room. Virginia pushed open the glass door. Ivory, she called, we've come to disturb you. Jeremy began to murmur something humorously gallant, then broke off in the middle of a sentence. He had suddenly remembered that pile of curious literature on the corner of the table. To get up and put the books into a cupboard would be to invite attention to them. He had no newspaper with much to cover them, no other books to mix them up with. There was nothing to be done, nothing except to hope for the best. Fervently, he hoped for it, and almost immediately the worst happened. Idly, out of the need to perform some muscular action, however pointless, Virginia picked up a volume of Nerciat, opened it on one of its conscientiously detailed engravings, looked, then with wider eyes looked again, and let out a whoop of startled excitement. Dr. Obisbo glanced and yelled in turn, then both broke out into enormous laughter. Jeremy sat in a misery of embarrassment, sickly smiling, while I asked him if that was how he spent his time, if this was the sort of thing he was studying. If only people weren't so wearisome, he was thinking, so deplorably unsubtle. Virginia turned over the pages until she found another illustration. Once more, there was an outcry of delight, astonishment, and this time, incredulity. Was it possible? Could it really be done? She spelled out the caption under the engraving. Le volupté frappé à toutes les portes. Uh, the voluptuous one knocking at all the doors. Then petulantly shook her head. It was no good. She couldn't understand it. Those French lessons at high school, just lousy. That was all you could say about them. They hadn't taught her anything except a lot of nonsense about le crayon de mon oncle and savez-vous planter le chou? <laughs> My uncle's pencil and do you know how to plant cabbage? She'd always said that studying was mostly a waste of time. This proved it. And why do they have to print this stuff in French anyhow? At the thought that the deficiencies in the educational system of the state of Oregon might forever prevent her from reading Andrea de Nerciat, the tears came into Virginia's eyes. It was really too bad. A brilliant idea occurred to Jeremy. Why shouldn't he offer to translate the book for her, viva voce and sentence by sentence, like an interpreter at a council meeting of the League of Nations? Yes, why not? The more he thought of it, the better the idea seemed to him to be. His decision was made, and he had begun to consider how most felicitously to phrase his offer, when Dr. Obiswell quietly took the volume Virginia was holding, picking up the three companion volumes from the table, along with Le Portier de Carme and the Saint Vingt Jour de Sodome, and slipped the entire collection into the side pocket of his jacket. Don't worry, he said to Virginia, I'll translate them for you. And now let's go back to the baboons. Pete will be wondering what's happened to us. Come on, Mr. Portage. In silence, but boiling inwardly with self-reproach for his own inefficiency and indignation at the doctor's impudence, Jeremy followed him out of the French window and down the steps. Pete had emptied his basket and was leaning against the wire, intently following with his eyes the movements of the animals within. At their approach, he turned towards them. His pleasant young face was bright with excitement. Do you know, Doc, he said, I believe it's working. What's working? asked Virginia. Pete's answering smile was beautiful with happiness. For oh, how happy he was, doubly and trebly happy. By the sweetness of her subsequent behavior, Virginia had more than made up for the pain she inflicted by turning away to listen to that smutty story. And after all, it probably wasn't a smutty story. He had been maligning her, thinking gratuitous evil of her. No, it certainly hadn't been a smutty story. Not smutty because, when she turned back to him, her face had looked like the face of a child, of that child in the illustrated Bible at home. That child who was gazing so innocently and cutely while Jesus said, 
of such is the kingdom of heaven. And that was not the only reason for his happiness. He was happy too because it looked as though, as though those cultures of the carp's intestinal flora were really having an effect on the baboons they had tried them on. I believe they're livelier, he explained, and their fur, it's kind of glossier. The fact gave him almost as great a satisfaction as did Virginia's presence here and the transfiguring richness of the evening sunlight, as did the memory of her sweetness, the uplifting conviction of her essential innocence. Indeed, in some obscure way, the rejuvenation of the baboons and Virginia's adorableness seemed to him to have a profound connection, a connection not only with one another, but also and at the same time with loyalist Spain and anti-fascism. Three separate things and yet one thing. There was a bit of poetry he had been made to learn at school. How did it go? I could not love thee, dear, so much. Loved I not something or another. He could not at the moment remember what more. <laughs> he did not love anything more than Virginia. But the fact that he cared so enormously much for science and justice, for this research and the boys back in Spain, did something to make his love for her more profound, and though it seemed a paradox, more wholehearted. Well, what about moving on, he suggested at last. Dr. Obispo looked at his wristwatch. I'd forgotten, he said. I've got some letters I ought to write before dinner. Guess I'll have to see Mr. Proctor some other time. That's too bad. Pete did his best to impart to his tone and expression the cordiality of regret that he did not feel. In fact, he was delighted. He admired Dr. Obispo, thought him a remarkable research worker, but not the sort of person a young innocent girl like Virginia ought to associate with. He dreaded for her the influence of so much cynicism and hard-boiledness. Besides, so far as his own reactions to Virginia were concerned, Dr. Obispo was always in the way. That's too bad, he repeated, and the intensity of his pleasure was such that he fairly ran up the steps leading from the baboon enclosure to the drive, ran so fast that his heart began palpitating and missing beats. Damn that rheumatic fever! Dr. Obispo stepped back to allow Virginia to pass, and as he did so, gave a little tap to the pocket containing Les Cent Vingeurs de Sodome and tipped her a wink. Virginia winked back and followed Pete up the steps. A few moments later, Dr. Obispo was walking up the drive, the others down. Or to be more exact, Pete and Jeremy were walking, where Virginia, to whom the idea of using one's legs to get from anywhere to anywhere else was practically unthinkable, sat on her strawberry and cream-colored scooter, and with one hand affectionately laid on Pete's shoulder, allowed herself to be carried down by the force of gravity. The noise of the baboons faded behind them, and at the next turn of the road, there was Gian Bologna's nymph, still indefatigably spouting from her polished breasts. Virginia suddenly interrupted a conversation about Clark Gable to say, in the righteously indignant tone of a vice crusader, I just can't figure why Uncle Joe allows that thing to stand there. It's disgusting. Disgusting? Jeremy echoed in astonishment. Disgusting, she repeated emphatically. <clears throat> Do you object to her not having clothes on, he asked, <clears throat> remembering as he did so those two little satin asymptotes to nudity which she herself had worn up there in the swimming pool? She shook her head impatiently. It's the way the water comes out. She made the grimace of one who had tasted something revolting. I think it's horrible. But why? Jeremy insisted. Because it's horrible, was all the explanation she could give. A child of her age, which was the age in this context of bottle feeding and contraception, she felt herself outraged by this monstrous piece of indelicacy from an earlier time. <clears throat> it was just horrible. That was all that could be said about it. Turning back to Pete, she went on talking about Clark Gable. Opposite the entrance to the grotto, Virginia parked her scooter. The masons had finished their work on the tomb and were gone. The place was empty. Virginia straightened her rakishly tilted yachting cap as a sign of respect, then ran up the steps, paused on the threshold across herself, <clears throat> and entering, knelt for a few moments before the image. The others waited silently in the roadway. 
Our lady was so wonderful to me when I had sinus trouble last summer, Virginia explained to Jeremy when she emerged again. That's why I got Uncle Joe to make this grotto for her. Wasn't it gorgeous when the archbishop came for the consecration, she added, turning to Pete. Pete, Pete nodded affirmatively. I haven't even had a cold since she's been here, Virginia went on as she took her seat on the scooter. Her face fairly shone with triumph. Every victory for the Queen of Heaven was also a personal success for Virginia Mounciple. Then abruptly, and without warning, as though she were doing a screen test and had received the order to register fatigue and self-pity, she passed a hand across her forehead, sighed profoundly, and in a tone of utter dejection and discouragement, said, All the same, I'm feeling pretty tired this evening. Guess I was in the sun too much right after lunch. Maybe I'd better go down and lie. Maybe I'd better go and lie down a bit. And affectionately, but very firmly rejecting Pete's offer to go back with her to the castle, she wheeled her scooter around so that it faced uphill, gave the young man a last, particularly charming, almost amorous smile and look, and, and said, Goodbye, Pete, darling. And, opening the throttle of the engine, shot off with gathering momentum and an accelerating roll of explosions up the steep curving road out of sight. Five minutes later, she was in her boudoir, fixing a chocolate and banana split at the soda fountain, seated in a gilded armchair upholstered in satin couleur festinif. Dr. Abisbo was reading aloud and translating as he went along from the first volume of Les Cent Vingt Jours. Chapter 8 Mr. Proctor was sitting on a bench under the largest of his eucalyptus trees. To the west, the mountains were already a flat silhouette against the evening sky, but in front of him, to the north, and the upper slopes were still alive with light and shadow, with rosy gold and depths of indigo. In the foreground, the castle had put on a garment of utterly improbable splendor and romance. Mr. Proctor looked at it, and at the hills, and up through the motionless leaves of the eucalyptus at the pale sky, then closed his eyes and noiselessly repeated Cardinal Berul's answer to the question, What is man? It was more than 30 years before, when he was writing his study of the cardinal, that he had first read those words. They had impressed him even then by their splendor and the precision of their eloquence. With the lapse of time and the growth of his experience, they had come to seem more than eloquent, had come to take on even richer connotations, even profounder significances. What is man, he whispered to himself. C'est un néant environné de Dieu, indigent de Dieu, capable de Dieu, et rempli de Dieu. It's a bather uh, surrounded by God, indigent without God, capable of God, and full of God if he wants. I think. A nothingness. Oh, no, they, damn it. A nothingness surrounded by God, indigent and capable of God, filled with God if he so desires. Now nah, I was close. <laughs> and what is this God of which men are capable? Mr. Proper answered this with the definition given by John Towler in the first paragraph of his Following of Christ. God is a being withdrawn from creatures, a free power, a pure working. Man, then, is as nothingness surrounded by and indigent of a being withdrawn from creatures, a nothingness capable of free power, filled with a pure working if he so desires, if he so desires. Mr. Proctor was distracted under reflecting with a sudden but rather bitter sadness. But how few men ever do desire, or desiring, ever know what to wish for or how to get it. Right knowledge is hardly less rare than the sustained goodwill to act on it. Of those few who look for God, most find, through ignorance, only such reflections of their own self-will as the God of battles, the God of the chosen people, the prayer answerer, the Savior. Having deviated thus far into negativity, Mr. Proctor was led on through a continuing failure of vigilance 
into an even less profitable preoccupation with the concrete and particular miseries of the day. He remembered his interview that morning with Hansen, who was the agent for Joe Stoit's estates in the valley. Hansen's treatment of the migrants who came to pick the fruit was worse even than the average. He had taken advantage of their number and their desperate need to force down wages. In the groves, he managed, young children were being made to work all day in the sun at the rate of two or three cents an hour. And when the day's work was finished, the homes to which they returned were a row of verminous styes in the wasteland beside the bed of the river. For these styes, Hansen was charging a rent of $10 a month. $10 a month for the privilege of freezing or suffocating, of sleeping a filthy promiscuity, of being eaten up by bedbugs and lice, of picking up ophthalmia and perhaps hookworm and amoebic dysentery. And yet Hansen was a very decent, kindly man, one who would be shocked and indignant if you saw you hurting a dog, one who would fly to the protection of a maltreated woman or a crying child. When Mr. Proctor drew this fact to his attention, Hansen had flushed darkly with anger. That's different, he had said. Mr. Proctor had tried to find out why it was different. It was his duty, Hansen had said. But how could it be his duty to treat children worse than slaves and inoculate them with hookworms? It was his duty to the estates. He wasn't doing anything for himself. But why should doing wrong for someone else be different from doing wrong on your behalf? The results were exactly the same in either case. The victims didn't suffer any less when you were doing what you called your duty than when you were acting in what you imagined might be your own interest. This time, the anger had exploded in violent abuse. It was the anger Mr. Proctor had perceived of the well-meaning but stupid man who was compelled against his will to ask himself indiscreet questions about what he has been doing as a matter of course. He doesn't want to ask these questions because he knows that if he does, he will be forced either to go on what he is doing, but with the cynic's awareness that he is doing wrong, or else, if he doesn't want to be a cynic, to change the entire pattern of his life so as to bring his desire to do right into harmony with the real facts as revealed in the course of self-interrogation. To most people, radical change is even more odious than cynicism. The only way between the horns of the dilemma is to persist at all costs in the, ignorant which per- in the ignorance which permits one to go on doing wrong in the comforting belief that by doing so one is accomplishing one's duty. One's duty to the company, to the shareholders, to the family, the city, the state, the fatherland, the church. For, of course, poor Hansen's case wasn't in any way unique. On a smaller scale, and therefore with less power to do evil, he was acting like all those civil servants, statesmen, and prelates, all those civil servants and statesmen and prelates who go through life spreading misery and destruction in the name of their ideals and under orders from their categorical imperatives. Well, he hadn't gotten very far with Mr. Hansen, Mr. Proctor sadly concluded. He'd have to try again with Joe Stoit. In the past, Joe had always refused to listen on the ground that the estates were Hansen's business. The alibi was so convenient that it would be hard, he foresaw, to break it down. From Hansen and Joe Stoit, his thoughts wandered to that newly arrived family of transients from Kansas to whom he had given one of his cabins. Three undernourished children with the teeth already rotting in their mouths. The woman, emaciated by God knew what complication of diseases, deep sunken already in apathy and weakness. The husband, alternately resentful and self-pitying, violent and morose. He had gone with the man to get some vegetables from the family garden plots. He had gone with the man to get some vegetables from the garden plots and a rabbit for the family supper. Sitting there, skinning the rabbit, he had had to listen to outbursts of incoherent complaint and indignation. Complaint and indignation against the wheat market, which had broken each time he had begun to do well. Against the banks he had borrowed money from and been unable to repay. Against the droughts and winds that had reduced his farm to 160 acres of dust and wilderness. 
against the luck that had always been against him, against the folks who had treated him so meanly everywhere all his life. Dismally familiar story. With inconsiderable variations, he had heard it a thousand times before. Sometimes they were sharecroppers from further south, dispossessed by the owners in a desperate attempt to make the farming pay. Sometimes, like this man, they had owned their own place and had been dispossessed not by financiers, but by the forces of nature. Forces of nature which they themselves had made destructive by tearing up the grass and planting nothing but wheat. Sometimes they had been hired men, displaced by the tractors. All of them had come to California as to a promised land, and California had already reduced them to a condition of wandering peonage and was fast transforming them into untouchables. Only a saint, Mr. Proctor reflected, only a saint could be a peon and a pariah with impunity, because only a saint would accept the position gladly and as though he had chosen it of his own free will. Poverty and suffering ennoble only when they are voluntary. By involuntary poverty and suffering, men are made worse. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for an involuntarily poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Here, for example, was this poor devil from Kansas. How had he reacted to involuntary poverty and suffering? So far as Mr. Proctor could judge, he was compensating himself for his misfortunes by brutality to those weaker than himself. The way he yelled at the children. It was an all-too-familiar symptom. When the rabbit was skinned and gutted, Mr. Proctor had interrogated his companion's monologue. Do you know which is the stupidest text in the Bible? He had suddenly asked. Startled and evidently a bit shocked, the man from Kansas had shaken his head. It's this, Mr. Proctor had said as he got up and handed him the carcass of the rabbit. They hated me without a cause. Under the eucalyptus tree, Mr. Proctor wearily sighed, pointing out to unfortunate people that, in part at any rate, they were pretty certainly responsible for their own misfortunes, explaining to them that ignorance and stupidity are no less severely punished by the nature of things than deliberate malice. These were never agreeable tasks. Never agreeable, but, so far as he could see, always necessary. For what hope, he asked himself, what faintest glimmer of hope is there for a man who really believes that they hated me without a cause, and that he had no part in his own disasters? Obviously, no hope whatever. We see, as a matter of brute fact, that disasters and hatreds are never without causes. We also see that some at least of those causes are generally under the control of the people who suffer the disasters or, or are the object of the hatred. In some measure, they are directly or indirectly responsible directly by the commission of stupid or malicious acts, indirectly by the omission to be as intelligent and compassionate as they might be. And if they make this omission, it is generally because they choose to conform unthinkingly to local standards and the current way of living. Mr. Proctor's thoughts return to the poor fellow from Kansas. Self-righteous, no doubt disagreeable to the neighbors, an incompetent farmer. But that wasn't the whole story. His gravest offense had been to accept the world in which he found himself as normal, rational, and right. Like all the others, he had allowed the advertisers to multiply his wants. He had, he had learned to equate happiness with possessions and prosperity, with money to spend in a shop. Like all the others, he had abandoned any idea of subsistence farming to think exclusively in terms of a cash crop. And he had gone on thinking in those terms, even when the crop no longer gave him any cash. Then, like all the others, he had got into debt with the banks. And finally, like all the others, he had learned that what the experts had been saying for a generation was perfectly true. In a semi-arid country, it is grass that holds down the soil. Tear up the grass, the soil will go. In due course, it had gone. The man from Kansas was now a peon and a pariah, and the experience was making a worse man of him. 
St. Peter Claver was another of the historical personages to whom Mr. Proctor had devoted a study. When the slave ships came into the harbor of Cartagena, Peter Claver was the only white man to venture down into the holds. There, in the unspeakable stench and heat, and the vapors of pus and excrement, he tended the sick, he dressed the ulcers of those whom their manacles had wounded. He held in his arms the men who had given way to despair, and spoke to them in the words of comfort and affection. Then, and, then, and in the interval, intervals, talked to them about their sins, their sins. The modern humanitarian would laugh if he were not shocked. And yet, such was the conclusion to which Mr. Proctor had gradually and reluctantly come, and yet St. Peter Claver was probably right. Not completely right, of course, for acting on wrong knowledge. No man, however well-intentioned, can be... Uh, not completely right, of course. For acting on wrong knowledge, no man, however well-intentioned, can be more than partially right. But as nearly right, at any rate, as a good man with a counter-reformation Catholic philosophy could expect to be. Right in insisting that, whatever the circumstances in which he finds himself, a human being always has omissions to make good, commissions whose effects must, if possible, be neutralized. Right in believing that it is well, even for the most brutally sinned against, to be reminded of their own shortcomings. Peter Claver's conception of the world had the defect of being erroneous, but the merit of being simple and dramatic. Given a personal God, dispenser of forgiveness, given heaven and hell and the absolute reality of human personalities, given the meritoriousness of mere good intentions and of unquestioning faith in a set of incorrect opinions, given the one true church, the efficacy of priestly mediation, the magic of sacraments, given all these, it was really quite easy to convince even a newly imported slave of his sinfulness and to explain exactly what he ought to do about it. But if there is no single inspired book, no uniquely holy church, no mediating priesthood nor sacramental magic, if there is no personal God to be placated into forgiving offenses, if there are, even in the moral world, only causes and effects and the enormous complexity of interrelationships, then clearly the task of telling people what to do about their shortcomings is much more difficult. For every individual is called on to display not only unsleeping goodwill, but also unsleeping intelligence. And this is not all. For if individuality is not absolute, if personalities are illusory figments of a self-will disastrously blind to the reality of a more than personal consciousness, of, what, of which it is the limitation and denial, then all of every human being's efforts must be directed in the last resort to the actualization of that more than personal consciousness. So that even intelligence is not sufficient as an adjunct to goodwill. There must also be the recollection which, which seeks to transform and transcend intelligence. Many are called, but few are chosen, because few even know in what salvation consists. Consider again this man from Kansas. Mr. Proctor sadly shook his head. Everything was against this poor fellow, his fundamentalist orthodoxy, his wounded and inflamed egotism, his nervous irritability, his low intelligence. The first three disadvantages might perhaps be removed. But could, could anything be done about the fourth? The nature of things is implacable towards weakness. From him that hath not shall be taken away everything that which he hath. And what were those words of Spinoza's? A man may be excusable and nevertheless be tormented in many ways. A horse is excusable for not being a man, but nevertheless he must needs be a horse and not a man. All the same, there must surely be something to be done for people like the man from Kansas. Something that didn't entail telling harmful untruths about the nature of things. The untruth, for example, that there is a person up aloft, or the other more modern untruth to the effect that human values are absolute, and that God is the nation or the party or the human race as a whole. 
Surely, Mr. Proctor insisted, surely there was something to be done for such people. The man from Kansas had begun by resenting what he had said about the chain of cause and effect, the network of relationships, resenting it as a personal insult. But afterwards, when he saw that he was not being blamed, that no attempt was being made to come it over him, he began to take an interest, to see that after all there was something in it. Little by little, it might be possible to make him think a bit more realistically, at least, about the world of everyday life, the outside world of appearances. And when he had done that, then it mightn't be so overwhelmingly difficult for him to think a bit more realistically about himself, to conceive of that all-important ego of his as a fiction, a kind of nightmare, a frantically aligned, a frantically agitated nothingness capable, when once its frenzy had been quieted, of being filled with God, with a God conceived and experienced as more than personal consciousness, as a free power, a pure working, a being withdrawn. Suddenly, as he thus returned to his starting point, Mr. Proctor became aware of the long, circuitous, unprofitable way he had traveled in order to reach it. He had come to this bench under the eucalyptus tree in order to recollect himself, in order to realize for a moment the existence of that other consciousness behind his private thoughts and feelings, that free, pure power greater than his own. He had come for this, but memories had slipped in while he was off his guard. Speculations had started up, cloud upon cloud, like seabirds rising from their nesting place to darken and eclipse the sun. Bondage is the life of personality, and for bondage the personal self will fight with tireless resourcefulness and the most stubborn cunning. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance, and he had failed to be vigilant. It wasn't a case, he reflected ruefully, of the spirit being willing and the flesh weak. That was altogether the wrong antithesis. The spirit is always willing, but the person who has a mind as well as a body is always unwilling, and the person, incidentally, is not weak, but extremely strong. He looked again at the mountains, at the pale sky between the leaves, at the soft russet pinks and purples and grays of the eucalyptus trunks, then shut his eyes once more. A nothingness surrounded by God, indigent of God, capable of God, and filled with God if man so desires. And what is God? A being withdrawn from creatures, a free power, a pure working. His vigilance gradually ceased to be an act of the will, a deliberate thrusting back of irrelevant personal thoughts and wishes and feelings. For little by little, these thoughts and wishes and feelings had settled like a muddy sediment in a jar of water. And as they settled, his vigilance was free to transform itself into a kind of effortless, unattached awareness, at once intense and still, alert and passive, an awareness whose object was the words he had spoken, and at the same time, that which surrounded the words. But that which surrounded the words was the awareness itself. For this vigilance, which was now an effortless awareness, what was it but an aspect, a partial expression of that impersonal and untroubled consciousness into which the words had been dropped, and through which they were slowly sinking. And as they sank, they took a new significance for the awareness that was following them down into the depths of itself. A significance new not in respect to the entities connoted by the words, but rather in the mode of their comprehension, which, from being intellectual in character, had become intuitive and direct, so that the nature of man in his potentiality and of God in actuality was realized by an analog of sensuous experience, by a kind of unmediated participation. The busy nothingness of his being experienced itself as transcended in the felt capacity for peace and purity, for the withdrawal from revulsions and desires, for the blissful freedom from personality. The sound of approaching footsteps made him open his eyes. Peter Boone and that Englishman he had sat with in the car were advancing up the path towards a seat under the eucalyptus trees. 
Mr. Proctor raised his hand in welcome and smiled. He was fond of young Pete. There was native intelligence there, and native kindliness. There was sensitiveness, generosity, a spontaneous decency of impulse and reaction. Charming and beautiful qualities. The pity was that by themselves, undirected as they were by a right knowledge of the nature of things, they should be so impotent for good, so inadequate to anything a reasonable man could call salvation. Fine gold, but still in the ore, unsmelted, unworked. Some day, perhaps, the boy would learn to use his gold. He would have to wish to learn first, and wish also to unlearn a lot of things he now regarded <coughs> as self-evident and right. <coughs> Woo! It would be hard for him, as hard, but for other reasons, as it would be for that poor fellow from Kansas. Well, Pete, he called, come and sit with me here. And you brought Mr. Portage. That's good. He moved to the middle of the bench so that they could sit one another side of him. And did you beat the ogre, he said to Jeremy, pointing in the direction of the castle. Jeremy made a grimace and nodded. I remember the name you used to call him at school, he said. That made it a little easier. Poor Joe, said Mr. Proctor. Fat people are always supposed to be so happy. But whoever enjoyed being laughed at? The jolly manner they sometimes have and the jokes they make at their own expense. It's just a case of alibis and prophylactics. They vaccinate themselves with their own ridicule so that they shan't react too violently to other people's. Jeremy smiled. He knew all about that. It's a good way out of an unpleasant predicament, he said. Mr. Proctor nodded. But unfortunately, he said, it didn't have to be Joe's way. Joe is the kind of fat boy who bluffs it out. The kind that fights. The kind that bullies or patronizes. The kind that boasts and shows off. The kind that buys popularity by treating the girls to ice creams, even if he has to steal a dime from his grandmother's purse to do it. The kind that goes on stealing, even if he's found out and gets beaten and believes it when they tell him he'll go to hell. Poor Joe. He's been that sort of fat boy all his life. He pointed once again in the direction of the castle. That's his monument to a faulty pituitary. <laughs> Talking of pituitaries, he went on, turning to Pete. How's the workman going? Pete had been thinking gloomily of Virginia, wondering for the hundredth time why she had left them, whether he had done anything to offend her, whether she was really tired or if there might be other, some other reason. At Mr. Proctor's mention of work, he looked up and his face brightened. "'It's going just fine,' he answered, and in quick, eager phrases, strangely compounded of slang and technical terms, he told Mr. Proctor about the results they already got with their mice and were beginning to get, so it seemed, with the baboons and the dogs." And if you succeed, Mr. Proctor asked, what happens to your dogs? Why, their life's prolonged, Pete answered triumphantly. Yes, yes, I know that, said the older man. What I meant to ask was something different. A dog's a wolf that hasn't fully developed. It's more like the fetus of a wolf than an adult wolf, isn't that so? Pete nodded. In other words, Mr. Proctor went on, it's a mild, tractable animal because it has never grown up into savagery. Isn't that supposed to be one of the mechanisms of evolutionary development? Pete nodded again. There's a kind of glandular equilibrium, he explained. Then a mutation comes along and knocks it sideways. You get a new equilibrium that happens to retard the development rate. You grow up, but you do it so slowly that you're dead before you stop being like your great-great-grandfather's fetus. Exactly, said Mr. Proctor. So what happens if you prolong the life of an animal that has evolved that way? Pete laughed and shrugged his shoulders. Guess we'll have to wait and see, he said. It would be a bit disquieting, said Mr. Proctor, if your dogs grew back in the process of growing up. Pete laughed again delightedly. Think of the dowagers being chased by their own Pekingese, he said. <laughs> uh, 
Mr. Proctor looked at him curiously and was silent for a moment, as though waiting to see whether Pete would make any further comment. The comment did not come. I'm glad you feel so happy about it, he said, then turning to Jeremy. It is not, if I remember rightly, Mr. Portage, it is not growing like a tree in bulk doth make men better be. Or standing long an oak three hundred years, said Jeremy, smiling with a pleasure which an apt quotation always gave him. What shall we all be doing at three hundred, Mr. Proctor speculated. Do you suppose you'd still be a scholar and a gentleman? Jeremy coughed and patted his bald head. One will certainly have stopped being a gentleman, he answered. One's begun to stop even now, thank heaven. But the scholar will stay the, stay the course. There's a lot of books in the British Museum. And you, Pete, said Mr. Proctor, do you suppose you'll still be doing scientific research? Why not? What's to prevent you from going on with it forever? The young man answered emphatically. Forever, Mr. Proctor repeated. You don't think you get a bit bored? One experiment after another, or one book after another, he added on the side to Jeremy. In general, one damn thing after another. You don't think that would prey on your mind a bit? I don't see why, said Pete. Time doesn't bother you, then. Pete shook his head. Why should it? Why shouldn't it? said Mr. Proctor, smiling at him with an amused affection. Time's a pretty bothersome thing, you know. Not if you aren't scared of dying or growing old. Yes, it is, Mr. Proctor insisted, even if you're not scared. It's nightmarish in itself. Intrinsically nightmarish, if you see what I mean. Intrinsically, Pete looked at him perplexed. I don't get it, he said. Intrinsically nightmarish. Nightmarish in the present tense, of course, Jeremy put in. But if one takes it in the fossil state, in the form of the Halbert papers, for example, he left the sentence unfinished. Oh, pleasant enough, said Mr. Proctor, agreeing with his implied conclusion. But after all, history isn't the real thing. Past time is only evil at a distance. And of course, the study of past time is itself a process in time. Cataloging bits of fossil evil can never be more than an ersatz for the experience of eternity. He glanced curiously at Pete, wondering how the boy would respond to what he was saying. Plunging like this into the heart of the matter, beginning at the very core and center of the mystery, it was risky. There was a danger of evoking nothing but bewilderment, or alternatively, nothing but angry derision. Pete's, he could see, was more nearly the first reaction, but it was a bewilderment that seemed to be tempered by interest. He looked as though he wanted to find out what it was all about. Meanwhile, Jeremy had begun to feel that this conversation was taking a most undesirable turn. What precisely are we supposed to be talking about, he asked Art as assiduously. The New Jerusalem? Mr. Proctor stared at him good-humoredly. It's all right, he said. I won't say a word about harps or wings. Well, that's something, said Jeremy. I never could get much satisfaction out of meaningless discourse, Mr. Proctor continued. I like the words I use to bear some relation to facts. That's why I'm interested in eternity, psychological eternity, because it's a fact. For you, perhaps, said Jeremy in a tone which implied that more civilized people didn't suffer from these hallucinations. For anyone who chooses to fulfill the conditions under which it can be experienced. And why should anyone choose to fulfill them? Why should anyone choose to go to Athens and see, to see the Parthenon? Because it's worth the bother. And the same is true of eternity. The experience of timeless good is worth all the trouble it involves. Timeless good, Jeremy repeated with distaste. I don't know what the words mean. Why should you, said Mr. Proctor. One doesn't know the full meaning of the word Parthenon until one has actually seen the thing. Yes, but at least I've seen photographs of the Parthenon. I've read descriptions. You've read descriptions of timeless good, Mr. Proctor answered. Dozens of them. In all the literatures of philosophy and religion. 
You've read them, but you've never bought your tickets for Athens. In a resentful silence, Jeremy had to admit to himself that this was true. The fact that it was true made him disapprove of the conversation even more profoundly than he had done before. As for time, Mr. Proctor was saying to Pete, what is it in this particular context but the medium in which evil propagates itself, the element in which evil lives and outside of which it dies? Indeed, it's more than the element of evil, more than merely its medium. If you carry your analysis far enough, you'll find that time is evil, one of the aspects of its essential substance. Jeremy listened with growing discomfort and a mounting irritation. His fears had been justified. The old boy was launching out into the worst kind of theology. Eternity, timeless experience of good, time as the substance of evil. It was bad enough, God knew, in books, but fired at you like this, point blank by somebody who really took it seriously. Why, it was really frightful. Why on earth couldn't people live their lives in a rational, civilized way? Why couldn't they take things as they came? Breakfast at 9, lunch at 1.30, tea at 5, and conversation. And the daily walk with Mr. Gladstone, the Yorkshire Terrier. <laughs> and the library, the works of Voltaire in 83 volumes, the inexhaustible treasure of Horace Walpole, and for a change, the Divine Comedy, and then in case you might be tempted to take the Middle Ages too seriously, Salimbeni's autobiography and The Miller's Tale, and sometimes calls in the afternoon, the rector, Lady Fredegond with her ear trumpet, Mr. Veal, and political discussions, except that in these last months, since the Anschluss and Munich, one had found that political discussion was one of the unpleasant things it was wise to avoid. And the weekly journey to London, with lunch at the Reform, and always dinner with old Thrip of the British Museum, and a chat with one's poor brother Tom at the Foreign Office. Only that, too, was rapidly becoming one of the things to be avoided. And then, of course, the London Library, and Vespers at Westminster Cathedral, if they happen to be singing Palestrina, and every alternate week between 5 and 6.30, an hour and a half with May or Doris in their flat in Maida Vale. Infinite squalor in a little room, as they like to call it, abysmally delightful. These were the things that came. Why couldn't they take them, quietly and sensibly? But no, they had to gibber about eternity and all the rest. The sort of stuff always made Jeremy want to be blasphemous, to ask whether God had a boyow rectum. Hmm, not sure what's going on there. To ask whether God had a boyow rectum. To protest, like the Japanese in the anecdote, that he was altogether flummoxed and perplexed by position of honorable bird. But unfortunately, the present was one of those peculiarly, peculiar, peculiarly exasperating cases where such reactions were out of place. For, after all, old Proctor had written short studies, what he said couldn't just be dismissed as the vaporings of a deficient mind. Besides, he hadn't talked Christianity, so the jokes about anthropomorphism were beside the point. It was really too exasperating. He assumed an expression of haughty detachment and even started to hum the honeysuckle and the bee. The impression he wanted to give was that of a superior being who, couldn't, who really couldn't be expected to waste his time listening to stuff like this. A comic spectacle, Mr. Proctor reflected as he looked at him, Except, of course, that it was so extremely depressing. Chapter 9 Time and craving, said Mr. Proctor. Craving and time. Two aspects of the same thing. And that thing is the raw material of evil. So you see, Pete, he added in another tone, you see what a queer sort of present you'll be making us if you're successful in your work. Another century or so of time and craving a couple of extra lifetimes of potential evil. And potential good, the young man insisted with a note of protest in his voice. 
and potential good, Mr. Proper agreed, but only at a far remove from that extra time you're giving us. Why do you say that, Pete asked. Because potential evil is in time, potential good isn't. The longer you live, the more evil you automatically come into contact with. Nobody comes automatically into, into contact with good. Men don't find more good by merely existing longer. It's curious, he went on reflectively, that people should always have concentrated on the problem of evil, exclusively, as though the nature of good were something self-evident. But it isn't self-evident. There's a problem of good at least as difficult as the problem of evil. And what's the solution, Pete asked. The solution is very simple and profoundly unacceptable. Actual good is outside time. Outside time? But then how? I told you it was unacceptable, said Mr. Proctor. But if it's outside time, then... Then nothing within time can be actual good. Time is potential evil, and craving converts the potential, potentiality into actual evil. Whereas a temporal act can never be more than potentially good, with a potentiality... What's more, that can't be actualized except out of time. But inside time, here, you know, just doing the ordinary things, hell, we do sometimes do right. What acts are good? Strictly speaking, none, Mr. Proctor answered. But in practice, I think one's justified in applying the word to certain acts. Any act that contributes towards the liberation of those concerned in it, I'd call it a good act. Liberation, the young man repeated dubiously, the words in his mind carried only economic and revolutionary connotations. But it, it was evident that Mr. Proctor wasn't talking about the necessity for getting rid of capitalism. Liberation from what? Mr. Proctor hesitated before replying. Should he go on with this, he wondered? The Englishman was hostile. The time short. The boy himself entirely ignorant. But it was an ignorance evidently mitigated by goodwill and a touching nostalgia for perfection. He decided to take a chance and go on. Liberation from time, he said. Liberation from craving and revulsion. Liberation from personality. But heck, said Pete, you're always talking about democracy. Doesn't that mean, res mean respecting personality? Of course, Mr. Proctor agreed. Respecting it in order that it may be able to transcend itself. Slavery and fanaticism intensify the obsession with time and evil and the self. Hence the value of democratic institutions and a skeptical attitude of mind. The more you respect a personality, the better its chance of discovering that all personality is a prison. Potential good is anything that helps you to get out of prison. Actualized good lies outside the prison, in timelessness, in the state of pure, disinterested consciousness. I'm not much good at abstractions, said the young man. Let's take some concrete examples. What about science, for instance? Is that good? Good, bad, and indifferent, according to how it's pursued and what it's used for. Good, bad, and indifferent, first of all, for the scientists themselves. Just as art and scholarship may be good, bad, or indifferent for artists and scholars. Good if it facilitates liberation. Indifferent if another helps nor hinders. Bad if it makes liberation more difficult by intensifying the obsession with personality. And remember, the apparent selflessness of the scientist or the artist is not necessarily a genuine freedom from the bondage of personality. Scientists and artists are men devoted to what we vaguely call an ideal. But what is an ideal? An ideal is merely the projection, on an enormously large scale, of some aspect of personality. Say that again, Pete requested, while even Jeremy so far forgot his pose of superior detachment to lend his most careful attention. Mr. Proctor said it again. And that's true, he went on, of every ideal except the highest, which is the ideal of liberation. Liberation from personality. Liberation from time and craving. Liberation into union with God, if you don't object to the word, Mr. Portage. Many people do, he added. 
is one of the words that the Mrs. Grundys of the intellect find peculiarly shocking. I always try to spare their sensibilities if I can. Well, to return to our idealist, he continued, glad to see that Jeremy had been constrained in spite of himself to smile. If he serves any ideal except the highest, whether it's the artist's ideal of beauty, or the scientist's ideal of truth, or the humanitarian's ideal of what currently passes for goodness, he's not serving God. He's serving a magnified aspect of himself. He may be completely devoted, but in the last analysis, his devotion turned out, turns out to be directed towards an aspect of his own personality. His apparent selflessness is really not a liberation from his ego, but merely another form of bondage. This means that science may be bad for scientists, even when it appears to be a deliverer. At the, and the same holds good of art, of scholarship, of humanitarianism. Jeremy thought nostalgically of his library at the Araucarias. Why couldn't this old madman be, madman be content to take things as they come? And what about other people, Pete was saying, people who aren't scientists? Hasn't it helped to set them free? Mr. Proctor nodded, and it has also helped to tie them more closely to themselves. And what's more, I should guess it, is, it has increased bondage more than it has diminished it, and will tend to go on increasing it progressively. How do you figure that out? Through its applications, Mr. Proctor answered. Applications to warfare, first of all. Better planes, better explosives, better guns and gases. Every improvement increases the sum of fear and hatred, widens the incidence of nationalistic hysteria. In other words, every improvement in armaments makes it more difficult for people to escape from their egos, more difficult to forget those horrible projections of themselves they call their ideals of patriotism, heroism, glory, and all the rest. And even the less destructive applications of science aren't really much more satisfactory. For what do such applications result in? The multiplication of possessible objects, the invention of new instruments of stimulation, the disseminations of new wants through propaganda aimed at equating possession with well-being and incessant stimulation with happiness. But incessant stimulation from without is a source of bondage, and so the preoccupation with possessions. And now you're threatening to prolong our lives so that we can go on being stimulated, go on desiring possessions, go on waving flags and hating our enemies, and being afraid of air attack. Go on and on, generation after generation, sinking deeper and deeper into the stinking slough of our own personality. He shook his head. No, I can't quite share your optimism about science. There was, a silence about, there was a silence while Pete debated with himself whether to ask Mr. Proctor about love. In the end, he decided he wouldn't. Virginia was too sacred. But why? Why had she turned back at the grotto? What could he have said or done to offend her? As much to prevent himself from brooding over those, these problems, as because he wanted to know the old man's opinions on the last of the three things that seemed to him supremely valuable, he looked up at Mr. Proctor and asked, What about social justice? I mean, take the French Revolution, or Russia. And what about the Spanish business, fighting for liberty and democracy against fascist aggression? He had tried to remain perfectly calm and scientific about the whole thing, but his voice trembled a little, at, a little as he spoke the last words. In spite of their familiarity, perhaps because of their familiarity, phrases like fascist aggression still had power to move him to the depths. Napoleon came out of the French Revolution, said Mr. Proctor after a moment's silence. German nationalism came out of Napoleon. The War of 1870 came out of German nationalism. The War of 1914 came out of the War of 1870. Hitler came out of the War of 1914. Those are the bad results of the French Revolution. The good results were the enfranchisement of the French peasants and the spread of political democracy. Put the good results on in one scale of your balance and the bad results on the other, and try which set is the heavier. Then perform the same operation with Russia. 
put the abolition of Tsardom and capitalism in one scale, and in the other put Stalin, put the secret police, put the famines, put 20 years of hardship for 150 million people, put the liquidation of intellectuals and kulaks and old Bolsheviks, put the hordes of slaves in prison camps, put the military conscription of everybody, male and female, from childhood to old age, put the revolutionary propaganda, which spurred the bourgeoisie to invent fascism. Mr. Proctor shook his head. Or take the fight for democracy in Spain, he went on. There was a fight for democracy all over Europe not so long ago. Rational prognosis can only be based on past experience. Look at the results of 1914 and then ask yourself what chance the loyalists ever had of establishing a liberal regime at the end of a long war. The others are winning, so we shall never have the opportunity of seeing what circumstances and their own passions would have driven those well-intentioned liberals to become. But hell, Pete broke out. What do you expect people to do when they're attacked by the fascists? Sit down and let their throats be cut? Of course not, said Mr. Proctor. I expect them to fight. And the expectation is based on my previous knowledge of human behavior. But the fact that people generally do react to that kind of situation in that kind of way doesn't prove that it's the best way of reacting. Experience make me, makes me expect that they'll behave like that. But experience also makes me expect that, if they do behave like that, the results will be disastrous. Well, how do you want us to act? Do you want us to sit still and do nothing? Not nothing, said Mr. Proctor, merely something appropriate. But what is appropriate? Not war, anyhow, nor a violent revolution, nor yet politics to any considerable extent, I should guess. Then what? That's what we've got to discover. The main lines are clear enough, but there's still a lot of work to be done on the practical details. Pete was not listening. His mind had gone back to that time in Aragon, when life had seemed supremely significant. But those boys back there in Spain, he burst out, you didn't know them, Mr. Propter. They were wonderful, really they were. Never mean to you, and brave, and loyal, and, and everything. He wrestled with the inadequacies of his vocabulary, with the fear of making an exhibition of himself by talking big like a highbrow. They weren't living for themselves, I can tell you that, Mr. Propter. He looked into the old man's face almost supplicatingly, as though imploring him to believe. They were living for something much bigger than themselves, like what you were talking about just now. You know, something more than personal. And what about Hitler's boys, Mr. Proctor asked. What about Mussolini's boys? What about Stalin's boys? Do you suppose that they're not just as brave, just as kind to one another, just as loyal to their cause, and just as firmly convinced that it's the cause of justice, truth, freedom, right, and honor? He looked at Pete inquiringly, but Pete said nothing. The fact that people have a lot of virtues, Mr. Proctor went on, doesn't prove anything about the goodness of their actions. You can have all the virtues, that's to say, all except the two that really matter, understanding and compassion. You can have all the others, I say, and be a thoroughly bad man. Indeed, you can't really be bad unless you do have most of the virtues. Look at Milton's Satan, for example. Brave, strong, generous, loyal, prudent, temperate, self-sacrificing. And let's give the dictators the credit that's due to them. Some of them are nearly as virtuous as Satan. Not quite, I admit, but nearly. That's why they can achieve so much evil. His elbows on his knees, Pete sat in silence, frowning. But that feeling, he said at last, that feeling there was between us, you know, the friendship, only it was more than just ordinary friendship, and the feeling of being there all together, fighting for the same thing, and the thing being worthwhile, and then the danger, and the rain, and that awful cold at nights, and the heat in the summer, and being thirsty, and even those lice in the dirt, share and share alike in everything, bad or good, and knowing that tomorrow it might be your turn, or one of the other boys, your turn for the field hospital, and the chances were they wouldn't have enough anesthetics, except maybe for an amputation or something like that, or your turn for the burial party. All those feelings, Mr. Proctor, I just can't believe they didn't mean something. 
They meant themselves, said Mr. Proctor. Jeremy saw the opportunity for a counterattack, and with a pompitude unusual in him, immediately took it. Doesn't the same thing apply to your feelings about eternity or whatever it is, he asked. Well, of course it does, said Mr. Proctor. Well, in that case, how can you claim any validity for it? The feeling means itself, and that's all there is to it. It means itself, Mr. Proctor agreed. But what precisely is this itself? In other words, what is the nature of the feeling? Don't ask me, said Jeremy with a shake of the head and a comically puzzled lift of the eyebrows. I really don't know. Mr. Proctor smiled. I know you don't want to know, he said, and I won't ask you. I'll just state the facts. The feeling in question is a non-personal experience of timeless peace. Accordingly, non-personality, timeliness, timelessness, and peace are what it means. Now let's consider the feeling that Pete has been talking about. These are all personal feelings, evoked by temporal situations, and characterized by a sense of excitement. Intensification of the ego within the world of time and craving. That's what those feelings meant. But you can't call self-sacrifice an intensification of the ego, said Pete. I can and I do, Mr. Proctor insisted, for the good reason that it generally is. Self-sacrifice to any but the highest cause is sacrifice to an ideal, which is simply a projection of the ego. What is commonly called self-sacrifice is the sacrifice of one part of the ego to another part, one set of personal feelings and passions for another set. As when the feelings connected with money or sex are sacrificed in order that the ego may have the feelings of superiority, solidarity and hatred which are associated with patriotism or any kind of political or religious fanaticism. Pete shook his head. Sometimes, he said, with a smile of rueful perplexity, sometimes you almost talk like Dr. Obisbo, you know, cynically. Mr. Proctor laughed. It's good to be cynical, he said. That is, if you know when to stop. Most of the things that we're all taught to respect and reverence, they don't deserve anything but cynicism. Take your own case. You've been taught to worship ideals like patriotism, social justice, science, romantic love. You've been told that such virtues as loyalty, temperance, courage, and prudence are good in themselves, in any circumstances. You've been assured that self-sacrifice is always splendid and fine feelings invariably good. And it's all nonsense, all a pack of lies that people have made up in order to justify themselves in continuing to deny God and wallow in their own egotism. Unless you're steadily and unflaggingly cynical about the solemn twaddle that's talked by bishops and bankers and professors and politicians and all the rest of them, you're lost, utterly lost, doomed for perpetual imprisonment in your ego, doomed to be a personality in a world of personalities. And a world of personalities is this world, the world of greed and fear and hatred, of war and capitalism and dictatorship and slavery. Yes, you've got to be cynical, Pete. Specifically cynical about all the actions and feelings you've been taught to suppose were good. Most of them are not good. They're merely evils which happen to be regarded as creditable. But unfortunately, creditable evil is just as bad as discreditable evil. Scribes and Pharisees aren't any better, in the last analysis, than publicans and sinners. Indeed, they're often much worse, for several reasons. Being well thought of by others, they think well of themselves. And nothing so confirms an egotism as thinking well of oneself. In the next place, publicans and sinners are generally just human animals, without enough energy or self-control to do much harm. Whereas the scribes and Pharisees have all the virtues, except the only two which count, and enough intelligence to understand everything except the real nature of the world. Publicans and sinners merely fornicate and overeat and get drunk. The people who make wars, the people who reduce their fellows to slavery, the people who kill and torture and tell lies in the name of their sacred causes, the really evil people in the world, these are never the publicans and the sinners. No, they're the virtuous, respectable men who have the finest feelings, the best brains, the noblest ideals.
So what it all boils down to, Pete concluded in a tone of angry despair, is there, ju there just isn't anything you can do. Is that it? Yes and no, said Mr. Proctor, in his quiet, judicial way. On a strictly human level, the level of time and craving, I should say that is quite true. In the last resort, there isn't anything you can do. But that's just defeatism, Pete protested. Why is it defeatism to be realistic? There must be something to do. I see no must about it. Then what about the reformers and all those people? If you're right, they're just wasting their time. It depends on what, you, on what they think they're doing, said Mr. Proctor. If they think they're just temporarily palliating particular distresses, if they see themselves as people engaged in laboriously deflecting evil from old channels into new and slightly different channels, then they can justifiably claim to be successful. But if they think they're making good appear where evil was before, why, then all history clearly shows that they are wasting their time. But why can't they make good appear where evil was before? Why do we fall when we jump out of a tenth-story window? Because the nature of things happens to be such that we do fall. And the nature of things is such that, on the strictly human level of time and craving, you can't achieve anything but evil. If you choose to work exclusively on that level, and exclusively for the ideals and causes that are characteristic of it, then you're insane if you expect to transform evil into good. You're insane because experience should have shown you that, on that level, there doesn't have to be any good. There are only different degrees and different kinds of evil. Then what do you want people to do? Don't talk as though it were all my fault, said Mr. Proctor. I didn't invent the universe. What ought they to do then? Well, if they want fresh varieties of evil, let them go on with what they're doing now. But if they want good, they'll have to change their tactics. And the encouraging thing, Mr. Proctor added in another tone, the encouraging thing is that there are tactics which will produce good. We see that there's nothing to be done on a strictly human level. Or rather, there are millions of things to be done, only none of them will achieve any good. But there is something effective to be done on the levels where good actually exists. So you see, Pete, I'm not a defeatist. I'm a strategist. I believe that if a battle is to be fought, it had better be fought under conditions in which there is at least some chance of winning. I believe that if you want the golden fleece, it's more sensible to go to the place where it exists than to rush around performing prodigies of valor in a country where all the fleeces happen to be coal black. Then where ought we to fight for good? Where good is. But where is it? On the level below the human and on the level above. On the animal level and on the level, well, you can take your choice of names. The level of eternity. The level, if you don't object, of God. The level of the spirit. Only that happens to be about the most ambiguous word in the language. On the lower level, good exists as the proper functioning of the organism in accordance with the laws of its own being. On the higher level, it exists in the form of a knowledge of the world without desire or aversion. It exists as the experience of eternity, as the transcendence of personality, the extension of consciousness beyond the limits imposed by the ego. Strictly human activities are activities that prevent the manifestation of good on the other two levels. For, insofar as we're human, we're obsessed with time. We're passionately concerned with our personalities and with those magnified projections of our personalities, which we call our policies, our ideals, our religions. And what are the results? Being obsessed with time and our egos, we are forever craving and worrying. But nothing impairs the normal functioning of the organism like craving and revulsion, like greed and fear and worry. Directly or indirectly, most of our physical ailments and disabilities are due to worrying and craving. We worry and craves our, crave ourselves into high blood pressure, heart disease, tuberculosis, peptic ulcer, low resistance to infection, neurasthenia, sexual aberrations, insanity, suicide, not to mention all the rest. Mr. Proctor waved his hand comprehensively. 
Craving even prevents us from seeing properly, he went on. The harder we try to see, the graver our error of accommodation. And it's the same with bodily posture. The more we worry about doing the thing immediately ahead of us in time, the more we interfere with our correct body posture, and the worse, in consequence, becomes the functioning of the entire organism. In a word, insofar as we're human beings, we prevent ourselves from realizing the physiological and instinctive good that we're capable of as animals. And mutatis mutandis, the same thing is true in regard to the sphere above. Insofar as we're human beings, we prevent ourselves from realizing the spiritual and timeless good that we're capable of as potential inhabitants of eternity, as potential enjoyers of the beatific vision. We worry and crave ourselves out of the very possibility of transcending personality and knowing, intellectually at first, and then by direct experience, the true nature of the world. Mr. Proctor was silent for a moment. Then, with a sudden smile, luckily, he went on, most of us don't manage to behave like human beings all the time. We forget our wretched little egos and those horrible great projections of our egos in the ideal world. Forget them and relapse for a while into harmless animality. The organism gets a chance to function according to its own laws. In other words, it gets a chance to realize such good as it's capable of. That's why we're as healthy and sane as we are. Even in great cities, as many as four persons out of five manage to go through life without having to be treated in a lunatic asylum. <laughs> if we were consistently human, the percentage of mental cases would rise from 20 to 100. But fortunately, most of us are incapable of consistency. The animal is always trying to resume its rights. And to some people fairly frequently, perhaps occasionally to all, there come little flashes of illumination, momentary glimpses into the nature of the world as it is for a consciousness liberated from appetite and time, of the world as it might be if we didn't choose to deny God by being our personal selves. Those flashes come to us when we're off our guard. Then craving and worry come rushing back, and the light is eclipsed once more by our personality and its lunatic ideals, its criminal policies and plans. There was silence. The sun had gone. Behind the mountains to the west, a pale yellow light faded through green into a blue that deepened as it climbed. At the zenith, it was all night. Pete sat quite still, staring into the dark but still transparent sky above the northern peaks. That voice, so calm at first and at the end so powerfully resonant, those words, now mercilessly critical of all the things to which he had given his allegiance, now charged with the half-comprehended promise of things incommensurably worthier of loyalty, had left him profoundly moved and at the same time perplexed and at a loss. Everything he saw would have to be thought of again, from the beginning. Science, politics, perhaps even love, even Virginia. He was appalled by the prospect, and yet, in another part of his being, attracted. He felt resentful at the thought of Mr. Proctor, but at the same time, loved the disquieting old man. Loved him for what he did, above all, for what he so admirably, and in Pete's own experience, uniquely was disinterestedly friendly, at once serene and powerful, gentle and strong, self-effacing, and yet intensely there, more present, so to speak, radiating more life than anyone else. Jeremy Portage also found himself taking an interest in what the old man said, had even, like Pete, experienced the stirrings of a certain disquiet, a disquiet nonetheless disquieting for having stirred in him before. The substance of what Mr. Propter had said was familiar to him, for, of course, he had read all the significant books on the subject, would have thought himself barbarously uneducated if he hadn't, had read Sankara and Eckhart, the Pali texts and John of the Cross, Charles de Condren, and the Bardo, and the Pentajali, and the Pseudo-Dionysus. He had read them and been moved by them into wondering whether he oughtn't to do something about them. And, because he had been moved in this way, he had taken the most elaborate pains to make fun of them, 
not only to other people, but also and above all to himself. You'd never bought your ticket to Athens, the man had said. Damn his eyes. Why did he want to go putting these, these things over on one? All one asked was to be left in peace, to take things as they came. Things as they came. One's books, one's little articles, and Lady Fredegon's ear trumpet, and Palestrina, and steak and kidney pudding at the Reform, and May and Doris, which reminded him that today was Friday. If he were in England, it would be his afternoon at the flat in Maida Vale. Deliberately, he turned his attention away from Mr. Propter and thought instead of those alternate Friday afternoons, of the pink lampshades, the smell of talcum powder and perspiration, the Trojan women, as he called them, because they worked so hard in their kimonos from Marks and Spencer's, the famed reproductions of pictures by Pointer and Alma Tedena, delicious irony that works which the Victorians had regarded as art should come to serve a generation later as pornography in a trollist bedroom. <laughs> and finally, the erotic routine, so matter-of-factly sordid, so conscientiously and professionally low, with a lowness and a sordidness that constituted for Jeremy their greatest charm, that he prized more highly than any amount of moonlight and romance, any number of lyrics and Liebenstuds, infinite squalor in a little room. It was the apotheosis of refinement, the logical conclusion of good taste. <laughs> That's good.